with the hottest takes and sharpest insights, you're listening to Camelo's Corner with Chris Camelo, your voice in the world of sports. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Camelo's Corner. I am your host, Chris Camelo. Oh, my goodness. Do I got a show for all of you today? The Rams are back in the Super Bowl for the second time in four years. A thrilling fourth quarter comeback in the NFC Championship over their hated rivals, the San Francisco 49ers. Unbelievable finish. We're going to get to breaking that down. What to expect in the Super Bowl? Has Matthew Stafford flipped the narrative? All of that. Brian Flores recently fired by the, excuse me, by the Miami Dolphins even though he had a really strong finish to the season, is now declaring war almost on the NFL, suing three professional teams as well as the league itself. Breaking that down, does he have a case? Uh, MLB remains locked out. Nowhere close to an agreement. They can't agree on anything. We recently heard uh, the... MLB Hall of Fame final ballots for this year. Who got in? Who remains out? Is that right? Is it not? And then, of course, the LA Lakers uh, <laughs> came off the Grammy road trip, got AD back, lost LeBron, and now losing four out of five. So we're going to be breaking that all down on this edition of Camelo's Corner. Great to be back. Be sure to download and follow all my podcasts on all major streaming platforms. I'm on Spotify. I'm on Google Play. I'm on SoundCloud. And of course, I'm on Apple iTunes. Leave me that five-star rating. Drop a comment and let's get it rolling. Okay. Well, the Lakers. Uh, Not much else to say at this point. I'm starting to run out of things to really positively talk about with this team. 25 and 28. Went two and four on the Grammy trip. They finally got Anthony Davis back after six weeks. And I'll say this, Anthony Davis has looked fantastic since coming back. He looks in a good rhythm. He looks fresh. He looks spry. He's, he's attacking the paint. He's posting up more. He's rebounding. I mean, he's looked really, really good. Um, I mean, he completely outplayed Joel Embiid in the game against the uh, Philadelphia 76ers. Yet, And that was the second game back. He had 31 points and I think 13 rebounds. And Embiid is one of the heavy favorites to winning MVP this year, him and Nikola Jokic. So he was fantastic. Uh, I, I got to say, I, I was expecting AD to come out, you know, rusty. Hey, anytime you need, need a chance to get into rhythm. And, and I don't know if his conditioning is quite there, but I'm telling you this, he is playing his tail off right now. And what this is reminding me and should be reminding Laker, Laker nation of, of is what this guy is capable of doing, not just when he's healthy, but when he's locked in, when he's focused, when he's hungry, this is the guy that we saw three years ago when the Lakers were the number one seed in the Western Conference. They got into the bubble and they smoked the competition. And he was a big reason why. The level of play that we're seeing through these uh, last you know, four games since he's come, come back is what we we're seeing a few years ago. And I think that's what's been the most frustrating part. Yes. There's been a lot of injuries. He had last last year, the Achilles tendinosis, then he got hurt again in the first round, the groin and the knee and all of that. Uh, this year was a sprained MCL. It was a freak occurrence out on the shelf for five weeks. Lakers managed to kind of stay afloat 500 ish. And now they're below 500 and 
just when we thought this is going to be the mad dash to the finish line, right? If you're going to get out of this playing situation, you're going to need AD back. You're going to need a healthy LeBron. You're going to need a healthy Westbrook. You're going to need all of these guys now to not miss any more time. Everyone on the same page, maybe do something. And it's going to be tough already, even with all of those guys healthy, because you have got such a difficult schedule. You still got to play the Clippers. You still got to play the 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 uh, Phoenix Suns a couple more times. You still got to play Golden State. You still got to play some of the the, the big wigs in the Eastern Conference. You still got to play Utah and Denver and Dallas and all these teams multiple times. So it is not going to be an easy finish between now and the middle of April. Then LeBron James shows up on the injury report, sore left knee. Now at the time we thought, okay, maybe a maintenance day for LeBron. Maybe he's taking a step back. AD gets gets back. Okay, we know how LeBron does it. Maintenance day, whatever. Turns out to be more serious than that. A lot of swelling in the knee. Couldn't even warm up. And didn't even finish the trip out with the Lakers. Missed the final three games. Lakers lost all three of them. Flew back to LA. The swelling is still not going down as, as much. Now, there's no structural damage. There's no tears. Nothing that requires any sort of surgery. It just requires rest. So just when we thought things were coming back together, you lose LeBron James. Now the Lakers were able to end a three-game losing streak, beating the lowly Portland Trailblazers, who just made a, a, a significant move, not for really themselves, but for the Clippers. We'll get into that in a, in a little while. But that was a big win. And then on the second of a back-to-back, you're playing the Clippers. Now Clippers have owned the Lakers. Now, I, I just saw this stat going into uh, excuse me Thursday night's game. They were 28-7 and seven over the last 10 years against the Lakers. 28-7. and seven. So 10 years, we're in 2022 now. You're going back to 2012. That is staggering because for years, the Lakers owned them in the head-to-heads. If they weren't sweeping them, they were usually going three and one and maybe the occasional split. But the Clippers have owned those head-to-head matches against the matchups against the Lakers. I mean, 28 and 7? That is awful right there. Awful. So they ended up winning. I mean, it was a close game. Clippers were up 17. Lakers stormed back in the fourth quarter, finally started playing some good defense. Westbrook and AD were fantastic. Malik Monk made a lot of big shots. Reeves was out there playing tough defense. So it's getting down to the nitty gritty. Both teams, it's it's like a heavyweight fight. Both teams are obviously hovering around 500, both in the playing situation. Both have dealt with a lot of injuries to stars this year, especially the Clippers, who've been without Kawhi and really been without Paul George for a few months now, uh, torn UCL in his elbow. And while we pretty much got word that Kawhi is likely not going to come back this season, regular season or playoffs, Paul George, that has not been made clear yet what they're going to do, but I got to imagine they're probably not going to force back Paul George. I mean, this is something I think they, you got to understand you got these guys for the next four or five years. You got a new state. You're going to, you're going to be moving into a new arena in the next three or four years. You're going to need somebody to market. So the last thing you want to do is make a mad dash for a six spot. And the, the fact of the matter is it's just not worth it this year. So we'll get to the Clippers in a sec, but the Clippers, the one thing that they've been doing all season long is playing hard. All these role players, everybody has stepped up. Some of the young guys, Amir Coffey, Brandon Boston, you know, obviously 
you know, we, we know what the vets can do, but it's just as a team, they've really, really played hard, similar to what they did a few years ago. Remember when they were the eight seed took on golden state in the first round, forced them to, to a six game series, just played really, really hard every night. That was the Lou Williams, Trez, Shea Gilgis, Patrick Beverly, that, that era of the Clippers doc was still head coach. So this, this team is sort of reminds me of that where, yeah, the, the record may not jump out at you, but any given night they could beat you. They came back from 35 down the other night. So um, I, I'm sorry, about a week ago in Washington down 35 and they won on a game winning four point play by Luke Kennard. So this is a team that's, that's a tough out and they've already beaten a healthy Lakers squad earlier this season. So it didn't surprise me that that game was close and it came down to the wire. Russell Westbrook threw a nice lob pass to AD to give the Lakers a one point lead with 12 seconds to go. Neither team had a timeout. Reggie Jackson, who had a big fourth quarter, was skipping up the floor, uh, got a switch that he wanted onto Austin Reeves. Now, Reeves played good defense and he saw the double team was coming. So Reeves cuts off the baseline, right? Jackson with the nifty spin move. The double team not only came late from Russ, but it was. It was sort of ill-advised for two reasons. One, Russ went for a steal. And two, he came in from the wrong angle. Like, if you're going to double team, my thing is, why are you coming so high? You want to try to come cut off the paint. So you want to go low and then come up high. Had, had um, Russ played the angle better, then Jackson would have been forced to do one or two things. Force up a tough uh, jump shot over two defenders or kick it out to, I think Russ switched out onto Terrence Mann. So Terrence Mann would have, you know, good three-point shooter, but you're certainly more comfortable with a guy who really didn't have a great game, who's not as good in those spots. I mean, I like Terrence Mann. That, that dude can hoop. But in a situation like that, you're more comfortable deferring to somebody like that than having Jackson or Marcus Morris Sr., who had a huge game, or Kennard, or somebody like that getting a, a, an open look. So then Lakers still had a shot. So Jackson makes a great move, great layup, uh, spin past two defenders and got an easy one. Red, uh, excuse me, uh, Anthony Davis went basically coast to coast, four seconds, got a decent look. Like in real time, it didn't look like that good of a look. And then you see the replays and it, he got it off. Uh, Serge Ibaka came over late. Uh, but AD got a pretty nice little floater and just couldn't put it down. Lakers dropped one. Um, that was their fourth loss in the last fifth, five games. Anthony Davis was still impressive, missed shot or not. Um, Lakers missed eight free throws. You could take a look at that. You could take a look at the fact that they didn't defend well, uh, especially in that third quarter. And once again, it's usually one of the two quarters, third or fourth. They play the first half all right for the most part. They play the first half all right, and then it seems like they come apart in the third quarter, case in point, the Clipper game or any other game, or the Atlanta game where they played a good third quarter, and now you come apart in the fourth, giving up 38 points to the Hawks, who are surging right now. They, they you know, Hawks are starting to figure some things out. They finally got healthy. They just beat the, the Phoenix Suns, so I'm not taking anything away from them, but still, you're up 10 with Westbrook and AD and a good assortment of role players you got to find a way to win that game. So you could go back home on a winning note and be like, okay, we can win without LeBron James. So it was a disappointing loss on a lot of different levels. Um, you know, at this point, and I just wrote a piece about this, the Lakers are playing for the plan. I, I don't really see them making a mad dash for the sixth spot. 
Now, maybe, maybe mathematically they're still alive in it. And I know a lot of people saying, well, whatever, they might fall off. And, you know, you got Dallas and blah, blah, blah. The fact of the matter is the Lakers aren't playing anywhere near consistently enough to make me think they could figure this out. You throw a LeBron in- injury into that. Now Carmelo, who's been a huge X factor for them all season, he's got a bad hamstring. They don't know the severity of it right now. I think they're going to treat it as day-to-day but he could end up missing a few games. Your schedule is now getting tougher. Teams are going to get better. Teams are going to get hungrier. And there really is no margin for error with 29 games left. So you are playing for the plan. Your best bet is almost similar to what, where the Lakers were at a year ago, where it's like, we don't care for the plan. Just give us one of the, either the seven or the eight spot. As long as we're healthy, we could beat a Phoenix. We could beat uh, a Utah, a, a Golden State. Well, this and this was last year. This year, Phoenix is the best team in the, in the league right now. Not even just the best in the West. They're the best in the league. They've got an all-star backcourt. <clears throat> They've got a real just strong group of role players. Mikel Bridges has had a breakout season. Jay Crowder is Crowder. Rough rider, experience, knockdown three, hard-nosed defender. DeAndre Ayton, I know he's had his injuries this year. He's played well for them. Cam Johnson off the bench has been good. Um, uh, JaVale McGee, what a pickup that was. You know, I said last year, Phoenix could use a one more big to offset Ayton a little bit, and they got him in JaVale McGee, former Laker champion a few years ago. So he's been good for them. And, I mean, they just have a very good squad. And even some of the no-name guys, are starting to get some, some run under, under Monty Williams. So, you know, there's no guarantees that you're, oh, well, we're the Lakers and we're healthy. We got LeBron. Okay, so you got all these dudes, but you can't win. You can't defend. You turn the ball over a lot. You have a hard time protecting the paint. You're bad in transition defense. If you're not making threes, your offense is kind of crappy. Doesn't have a real, any real substance to it. It's three-point shots or bust at times. You can't defend when it matters. So what, what are we really afraid of? That's the thing. I, I, I mean, as much as many may want to say, well, we don't want to play those. We don't want to take on LeBron or, or AD and, and Westbrook in a seven-game series. And that may be sticking in some teams' minds, but where's the evidence that they could be good, right? See, at least last year, I'll say this. They were 21 and eight at one point before all of the injuries started to occur. And they were still one of the, the number one defense as far as efficiency went a year ago. So there was that element of, if these guys are healthy, they could defend. They got LeBron, they got ID, they're the defending champs. You put them, they're going to, you know, light switch is going to turn on. Now it's like, you saw that didn't work a year ago. You see that it's not working this year with a group of aging vets who can't really defend who aren't, aren't that quick, who seem to, when the going gets tough, oftentimes they get going. And it's like, well, what are we, you know, what, what are we afraid of at this point? That's where we're at. So they're destined for the plan. And, and what we saw on Thursday night could very well be a play-in matchup. Seven and eight, Lakers and Clippers. You know, I, I still think Minnesota could be had. I mean, they're a half game. I think Minnesota ended up winning on Thursday night. So they picked up a game on the Lakers in the standings, but 
I think if the Lakers can put together a decent run, not a great run, but a decent run, maybe they could play for eight, that eight spot. And now you're taking on the Clippers again, where in a situation where it's seven and eight, if you win, you automatically get the seven spot. If you lose, you play the winner of nine, 10. So you still get, it's a double whammy. Remember we saw that last year with golden state where they lost to the Lakers, but they played Memphis who had just beaten San Antonio. And now that, that team ended up as the eight seed. So I think that's where you want to be in where at least you have, you have two bites at the apple, so to speak. Do you have two cracks at it? But at this point, you know, a lot of people are saying, what do they do with the deadline? There's been a lot of rumors out there. You know, now, now the rumors really with, you know, six, five, six days before the deadline, you're starting to see them already start to fly. You've, you're seeing, you know, can they trade Russ? Can they trade THT? Can they trade this guy, that guy? Fact of the matter is the Lakers, if they don't deal one of their big three who are making the most substantial salary, they're not going to trade AD. They're not going to trade LeBron. Russ, I'm sure they'll try to shop, but nobody's going to want Russ. He's, he hasn't had a great season. You know, he's played better of late. He came off a really strong performance in Charlotte where he willed the Lakers uh, nearly to a win only to come up a little bit short. Um, and uh, the only other guy you have is THT who, yeah, he, he's, he's got a $38 million deal over the next three years. So he's making about what, maybe about 13 a year, 12 and a half to 13 a year. Okay. So that's a, that's a pretty sizable contract. Yeah, Kendrick Nunn, who hasn't played a single minute all season, dealing with the worst bone bruise in the history of professional sports. Um, and who's going to want these guys? THC's value took a hit this year. He has not played well. He hasn't played consistently. He hasn't really been out there finishing games. He hasn't really proven to be a great complement to uh, Westbrook or even LeBron. It kind of feels like he's regressed a little bit this season. And maybe teams are scouting him a little bit better, and, and he hasn't quite uh made that transition now he made some big plays against the clippers on thursday night uh, you, you know he had the rundown block and uh you know knocked down a couple of big shots had a couple of nice assists but you know overall it just hasn't been consistent for every couple of good games he has he has a couple of bad games as well and you know hasn't also helped that malik monk and austin reeves have really emerged and i've taken a lot of those minutes that we thought were going to go to tht this season with all that said, you could still sell him on a potential, on, on his potential, similar to what you were able to sell guys like Ingram and, and Ball and Kuzma. It's like, hey, yeah, these guys aren't a great fit here, but you put them in your team, give them a little bit more rope, lower expectations, smaller market, less fan scrutiny. Maybe, maybe they, they might be more successful. And so far, the evidence has been there. Look at the Lakers of years past, all the youngsters through the years, Randall, D'Lo, Ingram, uh, Clarkson, um, uh, Lonzo Ball, now, now Kuzma, even Josh Hart has really turned himself into a strong piece in New Orleans. I mean, New Orleans has, been, has had a bad year. No Zion Williamson. They've been, you know, toward the seller of, of the league, but he's had a really strong year. And I would love to see Josh Hart back in LA. Now that he's figured some things out, he's healthy. Um, he's a more consistent three-point shooter. That is the kind of player who I think would be a great fit alongside LeBron and AD and Westbrook rather than THT. And I threw this out there on a Twitter spaces the other night where I even said, if the Lakers could somehow flip THT and Ke Kendrick Nunn, maybe a future pick, even though New Orleans has got a ton of them and get back 
Josh Hart and Devontae Graham, that would be great. Now, unfortunately, Devontae Graham's contract is too big. Like he just signed a four-year, $47 million deal. I didn't know that. I thought Graham was on a, on a smaller deal than that. And he's played well for New Orleans this year. But uh, those are the types of guys who are legit specialists. Hart obviously can defend. He could rebound. Good hard-nosed player. Graham, a more of a scoring guard who could also play off the ball and has also played in guard heavy lineups before, you know, even I think it was a year ago, he was playing in, um, in Charlotte with both LaMelo and, uh, and Terry Rozier. So guys like that could end up being better fits alongside LeBron and even somebody like Westbrook. So, but I don't think the Lakers are going to do that. Not to mention, are those guys going to save the Lakers season? No, if you're going to make a, a, you know, I don't even think a Jeremy Grant could save the Lakers. A Buddy Heald can't save the Lakers. You know, I know people want to get Russ's contract out of here and maybe you could try to salvage it, but I, I just don't think anyone's going to get it at this point. You know, that contract may have more value this summer, but it, it's certainly not going to have anything right now. However, speaking of trades, the Clippers, who many weren't sure what they were going to do at the deadline, including Brian Windhorst, they made a big move. They traded Eric Bledsoe, Justice Winslow, and a future second-round pick, 2025 second-rounder that I think belong, that they got from Detroit, to Portland for Norman Powell, former UCLA standout, champion with um, the Toronto Raptors in 2019, played alongside Kawhi Leonard, and Robert Covington, who hasn't had a great season offensively, but really good utility player. Got a lot of experience. He's played in Philly and Minnesota, Houston, um, you know, and, and has had some good years everywhere. He's pretty much gone. Very serviceable. So I thought that was a very interesting move from the Clippers, considering that we had just gotten the news earlier that day that Kawhi is probably not going to come back for the rest of the regular season. So I kind of thought, yeah, maybe the Clippers will just kind of stand pat, maybe shed some salary. And now here they are. They're getting Norman Powell, who just signed a five-year, $90 million extension to stay in Portland. And those five years are guaranteed. Like there's no options or anything like that. So you're going to have Powell for the next four and a half years, essentially. Covington's a free agent at season's end. So that's pretty much a rental right there. And you get Winslow and, um, and Bledsoe's contract off the books. And I wonder if now the Clippers, if they'll consider shedding, since now you got two wing players, if they'll consider trading a Terrence man or a Canard. Because remember, man's, man's contract's coming up after next season because I think he's got a team option for, for 2023. This is year three for him. Kennard is making a lot of money as well. So I'm wondering if they will now shed one of those contracts, maybe even Zubak as well, or Ibaka, and try to land themselves a point guard because that's the other thing that they've been linked to. So we'll see, but very interesting move. And I think for the Clippers... This is going to keep them competitive. And I think what's, what's good for them is Powell helps them now and he's going to help and he's going to be a really good fit alongside Kawhi as well as Paul George in the, uh, in, in the immediate future. You know, this dude is battle-tested. He's hard-nosed. Uh, he's won. I mean, obviously Kawhi trusts him because he was a big part of that championship. You know, when Danny Green was struggling in the postseason, Nick Nurse gave a lot of those minutes to, to Norman Powell. So he could play. That dude can play and actually he had a pretty good game against the Lakers. I think he dropped 30 against them the other night. So he was putting on an audition and, you know, Portland's about ready to blow it up. But, you know, I, I'm sure this won't be the last move they make, you know, CJ McCollum's name, I'm sure will come up 
We're hearing Dame Lillard's name is coming up as well. We'll see about Nurkic. I mean, they've got other desirable pieces that you put them in the right system on a winning team. Those guys could do something, you know? So I think this is the first of a couple of different moves that, that the uh, trailblazers are going to probably start doing and they're going to, you know, they won't be the, the only ones um, to do it. So, or they won't be the only ones out there making those moves, but th- that was big for, for, uh, for the Clippers. I mean, they essentially fleece the blazers without really giving up a whole heck of a lot. So now everyone's saying, well, how come the Lakers can't do that? Well, Lakers are financially handicapped because they don't have a lot of mid-level contracts. They've got either really top-heavy deals that they don't want to move anyway, or in Westbrook's case, can't move, or you've got everyone else making the league minimum with the exception of THT. And, you know, maybe the return is not going to be that great on THT, so they're standing pat. I mean, look, it's... It's early February. There's less than a week before the deadline. A lot of things can happen and a lot of things can change. Now, I wasn't sure how this deadline was going to look, but the fact that a move like this went down could lead to others. You got to watch out for Sacramento. You got to watch out for Indiana. You got to watch out for New Orleans. Those are the teams that are likely going to be the sellers, but everyone's going to want to get good value for, for some of these good players. But bravo to the Clippers front office and, I'm sure Jerry West had a hand in that as well. <laughs> All right. When we come back, the Rams in the Super Bowl, baby. Unbelievable finish, breaking down the game. How did they get here? And what to expect against them and the Bengals? Is Brian Flores doing the right thing with his lawsuit? What can be achieved out of it? And do we got to change the MLB voting for the Hall of Fame? Breaking that all down. Coming up on Camelo's Corner. Stay tuned, everybody. You know what? Here's to going for it. And being terrible. Here's to giving it a shot, even though your shot is uh, garbage. To being the queen of the court. Oh, maybe not this court. To feeling the burn, even if there shouldn't be a burn to feel. To trying your best, even though your swing is the worst. Here's to going down way harder than you get back up. To giving it your all. Even though you kind of suck. But you know what doesn't suck? (laughs) Trying to do something you've never done before. That doesn't suck at all. Not even a little. All right. Welcome back to Camelo's Corner. I'm your host, Chris Camelo. You know, the LA Rams, everyone was saying after they made the move for Matthew Stafford, which came up on a year, we weren't sure how it was going to go because for as good as he's been in his career, he was basically rotting away in Detroit for the most part. Um, played under one coach under after another. Never had a good team, really. You know, then, then he lost Megatron. Went to the playoffs a few times. Never won a playoff game. Uh, he was only 0-3, and he was there, what, like 12 years? So, I mean, I, I, I can't really say the guy could never deliver in the postseason because he didn't – the sample size was so small, and the team was never that good. There was never the expectations of, oh, Detroit's going to get in the playoffs, and they're going to make a lot of noise. 
like, I think they lost one year to Dallas, one year to New Orleans. For the life of me, I can't think of the other team that they lost to. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, Matthew Stafford was pitted with, with, painted with the stigma that he cannot deliver when it matters. He is a stats, you know, he, he's a stats cow, great. But he's a stats hunter. He's a guy that could put up big numbers, but he can't win you a lot of games. This was his opportunity. Now you've got a really good culture, an offensive-minded coach, good O-line, good run game, good defense, good receivers to throw to, right, which he didn't have over in his last few years in Detroit. So he didn't really have a whole lot of excuses. So the focus was going to be not just on him, but also on Sean McVay. Can you make this work? How big of a genius are you? Because remember, quarterback that couldn't get it done still got to a Super Bowl and Jared Goff back in 2018. So Stafford had a really good season. Yeah, they had a losing streak. You know, they, they lost a couple of games in a row. You know, I think, what was it in order? Titans, 49ers, Green Bay. And then they lost again to uh, the, the 49ers late in the season. So, I mean, it was, a, it was a rough stretch, but I think the, the, the aspect was this. Just don't turn the ball over. If you could avoid turning the ball over, we'll, we're going to win. If you turn the ball over, we're going to lose because as good of our defense is, if you're giving the opponent extra possessions with excellent field position, guess what? They're going to score points at some point. So there was that aspect of it. But, and then of course, I think what really opened people's eyes and may have really worried them was how things went down in week 18 against the 49ers. They're up. And I was at that game. They're up 17 to nothing. They, they were rolling. And then all of a sudden, things just completely fell apart in the second half. Niners completely took over the game. The defense couldn't stop the run. Stafford was throwing picks, uh, was getting sacked, just didn't look good. And I think that caused some concern. Like, how good is this team? How good is this guy going to be when the competition starts to get stiffer? But maybe that loss in week 18 was the best thing that ever happened to him. Because to be honest, the road to get to the Super Bowl might have been a little bit easier. Now in the first round, you're taking on a struggling Arizona team. You took care of them, 34 to 11. Great win. Stafford was fantastic. First ever playoff win. You get that monkey off your back. And now it's like, okay, cool. Now we're going up against TB12, Tampa Bay Buccaneers, defending Super Bowl champs on the road. Can you do it there? And they were cruising. For basically three quarters, they were up 27 to three. Then the, then, you know, the turnovers, not on Stafford, but on everybody else, fumble from cup, two from acres, bad snap. And that just gave Tampa Bay extra opportunities. They're able to come back and win it. And I think a lot of people at that point were like, Hey, this may not be it, but all of a sudden that drive in the final 40 plus seconds that Stafford was able to put together, finding Cooper Cup, putting them in field goal range to win it. That's what showed, that was the difference. That's what showed me that Matthew Stafford has flipped the narrative. This dude is a gamer. This dude is tough. This dude is not going to be afraid of the big moment when his number is called. And he delivered in that game. And basically retired Tom Brady and company. And shout out to Brady. Unbelievable career. 
I'm going to get to that a little bit more next week. You know, uh, Tom Brady, amazing career. I was, I think we're all a little surprised that he retired, but you know, you go out on top essentially. I mean, he had, he led the league in almost every major statistical category this year. I'm surprised there wasn't more talk about him being MVP, but that's how good he was at 43, 44 years old this year. But it was obvious that there were some things he wanted to address in his life, his wife, his kids, spend more time with them and going to move on to a different phase and maybe not want to go out where things start breaking down. Hey, let me go out on top where I was still able to throw it around and people have a positive memory of me because he, I mean, yeah, the defense got to him in that game, but I mean, he still willed the Bucks to an amazing comeback. I mean, that could have been an epic collapse from the Rams, but they were able to avoid disaster, move on to the NFC championship game. And in the process, the Niners are taking care of business in Dallas and against Aaron Rodgers and the Green Bay Packers up in Lambeau. So here we go. Round three of the matchup between Niners and the Rams. NFC West rivals, NorCal, SoCal. Uh, Niners have owned them the last three years in the, in the McVay Shanahan era six and oh, I mean, it, it was, it was lining up to be an epic battle and it was, and just when you thought things may not go the Rams's way. So especially after that pick in the red zone early on from Stafford and a near pick late in the game, which could have burned them. I mean, they had scored two, they, they had scored a touchdown to make it, Um, I believe it was 17 to 14. It was 17, I think to 10 or no, 17 to seven, 17 to seven. It was a 10 point game. And then they scored early in the fourth quarter and then they get the ball back. Stafford throws a near pick. I mean, he really underthrew the pass that should have really doomed the Rams right there. But once again, you gave him another opportunity and he was able to burn you put his team into field goal position a couple of times, found Cooper cup. Uh, uh, Kendall Blanton, who was the second string tight end filling in for Tyler Higby after he sprained his knee, went down Higby, big, big target for, for Stafford. He played well. Uh, Cam Akers had a strong performance. I mean, Odell Beckham Jr. What a turnaround he has had in his career. What a godsend he's been, especially after the injury to Robert Woods. He's been fantastic in these playoffs. He's been fantastic period for the Rams. And it didn't seem like it took him that long to get rolling. Vaughn Miller has found himself with this defense and, and him in that pass rush with Donald and, and um, uh, Leonard Floyd and a Sean Robinson and Greg Gaines and Troy reader. And all of those guys were fantastic. So after a couple of field goals, it's now down to the final drive. Here's Jimmy G out there trying to see if he could put together one more magical run and keep this improbable run of the Niners going ended up under pressure from Donald throw flinging it out interception I think it was Tavon Howard, and that was all she wrote. But I got to say this about before we get back into the Rams, I'll say this for the Niners. That is one tough team. I mean, for as much of a genius as Kyle Shanahan is, or so so he's regarded, it was really about the old school mentality that that team had. We're going to run the ball. We're going to play great defense. We're not going to put, we're not going to lean on Jimmy G. We just need him to make enough good plays and not lose the game for us. You don't necessarily need to win it, but you can't lose it. 
We're, we're not going to have you out there throwing for 350 yards and four, tu- four touchdowns. You're not Breeze. You're not Brady. You're not Big Ben. You're not Stafford, L- Lamar Jackson, or Murray, or any of these guys. We just want you to be a game manager. And we've, I mean, we can list a few quarterbacks who've won that way in years past. Trent Dilfer was one of them. Brad Johnson was another one with the Tampa Bay Bucks. We've got a great run game. We've got a great defense. Make a couple of throws here and there. Keep the chains moving. But outside of that, that's how we're going to win. And that's normally how you win in playoff football. Good running back, which they had. They had a couple of them. Elijah Mitchell, I think, is going to be a star in the making. Debo Samuel is an absolute beast. Five-tool type player who could run, who could make throws. He's hard to tackle. He's fantastic. You got Brandon Ayuk. You've got uh, uh, George Kittle, one of the best tight ends in the game. So, I mean, this is obviously the end of the Jimmy G era, as we know it. Uh, they're going to go to Trey Lance next year, and best of luck to him. I, I, I thought maybe they could do one more year. I thought Garoppolo may have played himself into one more year, um, you know, and then they could maybe give Trey another year just to develop and watch and work on his game and whatnot, but they want to go that direction. That's on them, and that's probably a good decision. Um, now you don't have, really have to worry about splitting time, Jimmy G can go someplace and compete to be a starter somewhere. And there's quite a few teams that are going to be looking for quarterbacks and you put him with the right offensive coordinator and the right system. Like I said, good O-line, which they have Niners definitely had and a good run game. And Jimmy G could do some good things for you, but this win was so huge for the Rams. And, you know, all we had been hearing all season long is that it is Super Bowl or bust. In order to justify trading all these picks and trading all these assets and trading Goff for Stafford, the only way it's going to be justified is if you at least get to the Super Bowl. But many others were like, hey, it's Super Bowl championship or bust, not just appearance. We were there already once, four years ago, and we lost. We don't want to go back and have another empty trip. We want to go back and win. And now it just lines up beautifully. You basically play a home game, even though the Cincinnati Bengals are going to be the designated home team. You basically are going to be the home team and you get to for the second year in a row. The team that or the city that's hosting has their home team in the Super Bowl. That's incredible. I mean, I thought it was amazing last year when the Bucs got in, but it's even more incredible now that the Rams are in there and shout out to the Cincinnati Bengals unbelievable run that they've been on knocking out the number one and the number two seed on the road, both Tennessee and then rallying from 18 down against the mighty chiefs in the, in Mahomes's house and forcing overtime, winning it on a game winning kick. That was incredible. So shout out to them, Zach Taylor, former uh, McVay assistant. He's done a fantastic job. Joe Burrow is an absolute gamer. It's not going to be an easy game. The Rams are going to have, I mean, What's good is that they, I think they have the edge defensively and they're going to put a ton of pressure on that O-line and put Burrow into some uncomfortable situations, but he's got a lot of targets. Higgins, Jamar Chase, uh, uh, Joe Mixon in the backfield. Tyler Boyd is a guy that can make uh, you know, some plays. Uh, Uzuma, their, um, their tight end. They're a really good team. And their, their defense is underrated. Defense is solid. You know, their defense was able to get Mahomes under pressure and really make life tough on them. That's when they were making all those that, that comeback. So I, I still give the Rams the edge. I know they're going to be four and a half point favorites going into this game, but I will not sleep on this Bengals team that 
Yeah, they may be inexperienced. Yeah, they may be young, but they ain't afraid. And they've got a lot of confidence. So shout out to that organization. They've been through a lot through the years. I mean, remember coming into this postseason, they had gone to the playoffs a lot and been bounced in the first round almost every, every year. That was one of the big reasons why Marvin Lewis got fired was, yeah, you're going to the playoffs, but you're not winning anything. We're extending our season by an extra week and that's it. Or an extra two weeks. So they got their first ever playoff, not first ever, but first in since 1988. And then all of a sudden you, you get through Tennessee, who is the number one seed coming off, off on a bye week. And then you take on the chiefs who, you know, looked like they were going to route them. That game looked like it was over in the second quarter and Bengals just kept coming, just kept coming. I mean, Joe Burrow, that dude is a force man. And he's got a really, really bright career ahead of him. And, uh, you know, former national champion at LSU, um, you know, coming off of an ACL tear in his rookie season, it, it, I'm sure that took a mental toll on him. But to come back in, what, your second year and lead your team to the Super Bowl, I mean, that is unheard of right there. So no matter how this plays out, it won't be a major disappointment if Cincinnati loses. It really won't. Because they have got so much to be proud of already. And that division, I think, is going to be a little bit more open in the next few years. Yeah, you got Baltimore you got to worry about. But Cleveland is faltering. Pittsburgh just lost Big Ben. I think they're going to start to, you know, I mean, unless they land somebody like Aaron Rodgers. But the, the door is open for Cincinnati over the next few years to really build something within that organization. And of course, in a division that I think is going to get a little bit softer, I think that's something to watch out for. Whereas with the Rams, they've basically been going all in the last couple of years. And they, their, their time is now because, you know, I mean, not to say that if they win it, they'll never be back. I'm not saying that, but we know in professional sports, dynasties are hard to come by. I mean, look, look, look at the Chiefs. Prime example. They got a ton of guys in their prime. Kelsey, Hill, Mahomes, you know, Edwards Hilaire. They've got one of the great offensive minds of all time in Andy Reid. Four straight AFC championships, two Super Bowls, one championship. So it just goes to show you not everybody can be the New England Patriots. Not everyone could be the Dallas Cowboys. Not everybody could even be what the Denver Broncos did in the late 90s back-to-back Super Bowls. It is very, very difficult. The league changes. You know, teams are great one year, struggle the next. They lose players to free agency. They don't replace them. Coaches leave. It's hard. So if you have an opportunity to get here and win it, you've got to take advantage of it. And that's what I'm talking about for the Rams. You know, yeah. I mean, Stafford is still in his prime. I think he's still pretty good. Cooper Cup is is an amazing force as a as a receiver who knows maybe Odell Beckham Jr. might stick around for a couple more years since he's loves it in LA and loves his team so much um you know the team has proven that they could find value in in lower draft picks and you might even be able to get some bets to sign here and, and whatnot but you know still if you have an opportunity to do it and you're there you got to finish the job this time around because you're not going up against Brady and Belichick and a team that's been there done that you're going up against a relatively inexperienced squad with a bad O-line. So it's lining up for you to take care of business. And that would be a, it would be a very disappointing loss to get to this point and lose to a team like that. 
I mean, obviously I tip my cap to the Cincinnati Bengals, but it would almost be like Rams deserve this just a little bit more, but you still got to play the game, right? You still got to go out there and you got to execute. So it's going to be going to be a very interesting Super Bowl. All right, Brian Flores. Uh, this really came, I think, as a surprise to everybody. Like he was recently fired, and then all of a sudden he's filing a lawsuit. And I think everybody was caught off guard. And but once we found out some of the things that he, that was being reported in the lawsuit, being asked to tank games by the Miami Dolphins owner Stephen Ross. The text message from Belichick, who basically congratulated him, but actually wanted to congratulate Brian Dable. And he had not had that second interview and, and all of that, those things. I got to say this for Flores. What he's doing is, is courageous because he's sacrificing his own career at this point as a head coach in the National Football League. We know how these things work. You don't go along or you, you try to expose them. They will make your life so difficult and make sure that you were exiled and it's, it's disgusting how that works, but that's just the way these owners are. It's a good old boys club, but still courage from Brian Flores. And this is what he had to say when he was on get up and talking about this lawsuit. That was uh, a conversation about not doing as much as we needed to do to win football games. You know, take a flight, go on vacation. I'll give you a hundred thousand dollars per loss. Like those are just the you know exact words. Um, and it's not something. Look, I deal in truth, um, and I've, I say that to the players as well. I'm going to give you, you know, good news, bad news, but it's going to be the truth. It's going to be honest. Um, and in that instance, you know, look, I I, I came from. Look, this game's done a lot for me, mm -hmm. uh, a lot for me personally and my family. Um, you know, I've said this, you know, on other, you know shows but my parents are immigrants i'm first generation i grew up with you know you know in a tough neighborhood here in, in, in brooklyn brownsville where there's crime and poverty and you know violence um and it was hard to to make it out of there and the game of football is a reason why or a big reason why along with a lot of the great people that mentors i've had in my life um why i was able to have the success that i've had so to disrespect the game that way um was 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 something that you know, trust was lost and there were certainly some some strained relationships and ultimately i think that was you know, to my demise in, in miami and, and his story so that was uh brian flores on get up with mike greenberg and his lawyer was on there and flores has been making the rounds he's been on msnbc he's been on good morning america just to name a few and we're still having the same conversation in 2022 as we were having five years ago as we've as we had 10 years ago, as we've had 20 years ago, as we've been having for decades. And it's about it's not just about equality. It's not just about it's about general fairness, human decency. Like that's that's really what this is about. You know, Brian Flores is not asking for any sort of special, you know, treatment. They him and other African-American and other minority coaches, they want a level playing field. You know, the, the thought process when the Rooney rule came out in 2003 was that it is going to allow these teams 
to really maybe find something in a place that they weren't looking, right? Because we know how this works. These owners, these execs, they want guys that look like them, but they're getting these underqualified dudes. And, and, and I'm not saying all these white coaches are undeserving, but think about it just on a res, you know, I'm thinking about it also just on a resume aspect. Let's, let, let's just put it to that just for a second. Nathaniel Hackett, Nick Sirianni, Matt Eberflus, you know, uh, Dan Campbell. These guys, what have, you know, what have they done in their careers to net, you know, head coaching positions? More so, like, like they've done more than Eric Bieniemy, four straight a a a AFC championship games, coaching one of the most prolific offenses in the NFL. Byron Leftwich, who was uh, in the Super Bowl last year, just won a championship as offensive coordinator under Bruce Arians. Todd Bowles, defensive coordinator. You know, yeah, you know, former head coach of the Jets. Yeah, it didn't work out there, but how much was that was how much of that was on him? How much of that is just the fact that the Jets are just such a shitty organization and piss poorly run? Vance Joseph, go back a few years back uh, in Denver, run out of town after two years. Uh, Wilkes, Steve Wilkes in, in Arizona, one year in Arizona, they, then gets run out. So it's like, you know, yeah, we're hiring guys. Yeah, but you're, first of all, you're hiring them and then quickly firing them. You're not giving them a chance to build anything. You're not giving African-American coaches the same level of support and guidance and helping them succeed as maybe other coaches are. You're not giving them that same sort of runway to be successful. You know, one of the reasons why Mike Tomlin has been so successful in who is now the only African-American head coach in the NFL is because he's had the support of the organization. And yeah, of course, having a future Hall of Fame quarterback in, in Ben Roethlisberger helps too, but he has also been given the right tools. Like those, those execs have done well by Mike Tomlin. They've drafted well. They've made the right trades, the right signings. And these other coaches don't get that same level of support. They're inheriting dumpster fires. And if they don't turn it around yesterday, then they're out of the job in two years and it puts them in a sticky spot because it's like, well, if I turn down this position, I may not get another opportunity like this. Who knows when? And if I do take it and I get fired now I'm back at square one. And now my, my, my reputation gets a hit and I may not get another opportunity after that. So it's, it, it's a, it's a weird combination of having fairness and have a, having the level playing field. And why do you need to see more from African-American coaches when, like, what has Matt Eberflus done? Like, wh why does he get the Chicago job? Okay, he spent a couple of years as defensive coordinator in, in the Colts. I'm not saying he may do a great job in Chicago. I'm just saying, like, that resume is more impressive than what Todd Bowles has done. That resume is more important than, or, or more impressive than what Van Joseph has done. That resume is more impressive than what D'Amico Ryan has done with the Niners. It's silly. Nathaniel Hackett. Okay, there might be something else there with Denver because Aaron Rodgers liked Hackett when they were together in Green Bay, and we don't know what Rodgers' future is going to be, so maybe this is Denver's way of maybe enticing the pot a little bit to getting A-Rod to Denver, but still, like, 
even if the, oh, so, so you have to have a contingency plan. Like if they don't get Rogers in Denver, then is Hackett going to elevate that Denver team that really hasn't done shit in years? I mean, not since the Super Bowl championship. So it's just, it's very odd. And it's a buddy-buddy system. It's a good old boys club. It's, it's nepotism. It's all of these things. And probably some racism as well, you know? And, you know, the league, of course, all these teams, the Giants, the Denver Broncos, you know, you heard John Elway and some of the execs showed up drunk and hung over uh, at, at uh, uh, Brian Flores' second interview a few years back when he was interviewing for the um, Denver job, which ultimately went to Vic Fangio, who ultimately just got fired after two seasons. So it's like, you're not even taking this Rooney rule seriously. You're not giving these qualified applicants who are very good at what they do, a really a fair shake. Once you hire them, or in this case, even before you hire them and you got your minds made up before you even are getting to a second interview. So where is the level playing field at? You know, it's almost like, yeah, we're doing it. You know, you're, 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 you're ducking, you're ducking the rule. You're finding loopholes. And in the end, you just want to get your own guys in there. When there's a lot of other qualified candidates and this goes beyond just the head coaching position. What about, um, what about the fact there's only 12% offensive coordinators who are African-American in the, in the NFL, 34% are defensive coordinators. So, I mean, both numbers are relatively low, but on the offensive side, that number has got to change because apparently that's where the jobs are now going. They're going to hot shot offensive coordinators. You know, people see what Brian Dable did in Buffalo. They want him. People saw what Nathaniel Hackett did with Aaron Rodgers this past year. They want him. People see what Kevin O'Connell, like even him, like, and I like Kevin O'Connell. I think he's done a solid job, but you know, now he's going to be the next head coach of the Vikings. He's not even really the main offensive play caller for the Rams from everything that I've heard. That's job still belongs to Sean McVay. So he's more qualified for a job over than more so than Byron Leftwich and Eric B really. So it's just, it's sad to see. It's sad that we're still having these conversations. It felt like years ago, things were trending in the right direction. And the thing is, it's, you know, people are saying, well, what, they're supposed to just get jobs because they're black? No, these are qualified candidates. These are guys who have been working really hard. And never mind the job title. Some of them have been working as defensive backs coaches or receivers coaches or offensive line coaches or special teams coaches, you know, and then eventually, yeah, they get promoted to, to other positions, defensive coordinator, offensive coordinator. So it, you're, you're trying to get the best candidate for these jobs. And there's something not right in some of these no names that are getting these jobs and, and essentially jump in the line and who's left holding the bag. And especially in a league that's 75 to 80% African-American, wouldn't you want to see a better cross representation of how the league looks and see it on the sideline? We have three minority coaches, period. Ron Rivera is half Puerto Rican, half Mexican. Robert Saleh of the New York Jets is Lebanese. And, and I believe he's also one of the first um, 
one of the first Middle Eastern coaches in, in the NFL ever. So, I mean, that was obviously a big barrier that was broken through. And you got Mike Tomlin. And that's it. So, I mean, there's a lot to be addressed here. You know, you, you hear all these BS statements, denying stuff, calling Brian Flores a liar and, you know, vehemently denying all of this stuff. But you know what? This requires a harder look into. And the fact that Flores exposed Stephen Ross for intentionally taking games and offering, excuse me, offering him a hundred grand for losses. Like you think about that 14 losses equals 1.4 million. The fact that Flores turned that down and is doing this lawsuit, not for money tells you everything you need to know. Flores is not out here looking for a, a big time paycheck, a big time payday or anything like that. He doesn't want anything material. He wants to see significant changes made to the hiring processes of not just coaches, not just head coaches, I mean, but coordinator jobs, assistant coaches positions, executives, all of it. It's all got to change. And if it doesn't, I mean, I, I, I mean, and here's the other thing. How do you change it? I don't know, to be quite honest with you. I don't have any of the answers. I'm ups I was upset when I heard about this because Brian Flores is a damn good coach. And I hope we haven't seen the last of him on our NFL sideline. Um, and I, and I really hope, you know, I, I mean, I'm not going to hold my breath that he's going to get one of these three positions in light of everything that just came out, but still like, I hope we haven't seen the last of him, you know, but he knows full well, this could be the end of his career. You know, when you expose, when you put a spotlight on something that the, that could shake things up and, and, and put the focus on owners and, and discriminatory practices and things like that, then yeah, it is a black eye for the league. But if we all, if we've also learned one thing about it is that whether it's talking about sexual assault, when the case of the Washington football team with Dan Snyder or the, the, the concussion situation, the CTE, if you watch the movie Con concussion and how the league didn't really want to, you know, talk that football can cause, you know, serious concussion problems that could lead to CTE. And, and like, even that situation of paying out former athletes who had suffered uh, because of CTE, like there's a long line of just, just dirty how this league operates how sticky things get and how nobody wants to address anything or fix anything when it actually happens it takes years for any sort of change and even then it's just a matter of time before it's like we're right back at square one so we think so i commend brian flores i can't imagine this was an easy decision to make but once again, hey, I may lose my job, but maybe something greater comes along down the road. But there's a lot that needs to be changed there. And I think there's so many qualified African-American coaches or any sort of minority, you know, head coach, any non-white coach deserves an opportunity. And I hope not only are they given that opportunity, but they are put in a position to succeed. I think that's, I think that's the one thing other people aren't talking about as much. It's not about just getting the job. I mean, that's a huge part of it. Don't get me wrong, but it's also about, are you being put in the best position to, to be successful? 
It's like, yeah, I got a job. Great. Cool. Where are you working? Ah, I'm working in a crappy area, no parking, bad chair, no air conditioning, slow moving computer. So how are you supposed to do your job? Well, if you don't have the tools to be successful, just think about it in your own life. If you didn't have the right things to be successful, how are you going to get any work done? How are you going to be an asset to the company? How are you going to, you know, uh, uh, make ends meet? Before you start saying, you know what, this ain't worth it over here. Yeah, I'm making good money, but I'm not, I, I can't function properly like this. It's sad. It really is. So shout out to Brian Flores. Should be an interesting super week with this story now out there. And I'm sure Roger Goodell, once again, he's got, he's got a mess on his hands. But hey, he's also part of the problem. Speaking of a problem, how about the MLB? Still no closer to a deal between the owners and the Players Association. They've met a couple of times. Negotiations have not gone well. Little progress has been made. And, I mean, we're in early February. This is usually right after the Super Bowl, shortly after that, when pitchers and catchers are supposed to report. We're we're usually about a month away from spring training. And now we don't know what's going to happen here. There was even talks that a federal mediator could come in and the players and the owners couldn't even agree on that. It's just horrible right now. And who are the biggest losers of it? The fans. And not only that, though, how about the employees of the stadiums, of the teams? You know, yeah, some of the, I mean, they're not the ones making 40 million a year who could just kick back and relax. No, these are people who need their paychecks. So, I mean, everybody loses on this. The fans, the staffers, the stadium employees, everybody loses in a situation like this with the lockout. And, you know, this is what, the third time maybe in the last 25, 26 years we're dealing with some shit like this now? Ugh, horrible, horrible. And I I don't see it getting better anytime soon. So if anyone was expecting the season to start on time like I was, oh boy. Sorely mistaken. That's why I've been, I've been tweeting this out. The movie between the two negotiations should be much ado about nothing. Cause that's exactly what's happening. Nothing. Nada. However, baseball did make some big news over the last couple of weeks. Um, the hall of fame, which has been always a controversial topic in recent years, because the question is, do you admit guys who, were steroid users or alleged steroid users, or do you not put them in? There was one inductee and that was David Ortiz, who by the way, did fail an actual steroid test, a drug test back in, I think 2003 or 2004. And apparently he admitted to it and all was forgiven. Still turned in an amazing career as a DH, one of the most accomplished DHs ever three-time World Series champion, one of the most clutch hitters in in the history of October baseball. He was the lone inductee for this year. Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, and Kurt Schilling have still been shut out. And for Bonds and Clemens, this was their final year of eligibility. I think Schilling has a few more years, but given some of the controversy surrounding Schilling in recent years, some of the idiotic and uh, ignorant and 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 bigoted tweets that he's put out there he may not make it in either 
um, Bonds and and Clemens were, you know, pretty much. I mean, they're they're not the only ones, but uh, they they're one of the most highly touted ones that were alleged steroid users. So it's it's a shame. And and here's my thing: for a long time, I said if they use steroids, don't put them in, don't put them into the Hall of Fame. And I think there's a couple of things here. One is how can you punish these guys that did stuff that wasn't exactly illegal for the time? Don't forget, baseball turned a blind eye to all of this stuff because of how captivating the home run chase was in 90, I think it was 98 between uh, Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa, the home run race. Um, We, we now know those guys were both, you know, juicing admittedly. So at least in McGuire's case, after that, you know, we saw the bond situation broke Henry Aaron's home run record, uh, 762 career home runs uh, for, for Barry bonds. And Here's my thing. Two wrongs don't make a right. And at the time, they weren't technically violating league rules. The league turned a blind eye to it until there was a whistleblower. And then all of a sudden, all hell broke loose. You had the Mitchell report. You had congressional hearings. What did the commissioner know? What didn't he know? Did he condone this? There's a lot of that. So if everybody was in the wrong, why are these guys getting punished for it? Not to mention, enough's enough. You can't tell the history of baseball without including Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds and even Kurt Schilling. And, you know, and I was talking with a colleague of mine who I actually wanted to get on this particular show, but he was unavailable. And it's like, well, it's not just based on what they did on the field, but you've also got to think character and morals and this and that. I'm like, you're basing it on character and morals, but those are objective terms. You know, yeah, I understand a lot of media did not like Roger Clemens. I'm sure a lot of media did not like Barry Bonds. I'm sure a lot of media didn't like Kurt Schilling and certainly didn't like him post playing career. But I mean, are we going to punish all of these dudes for things that are quote unquote character issues? Because here's why they didn't break any laws as far as MLB went. Not until years after the fact was the testing and things like that in place. Barry Bonds never actually failed an MLB issued steroid test. He was thrown under the bus in these books and Balco and and former trainers and things like that. But he never actually, there's not a piece of paper that said, this is the positive test right here. And same thing in Clemens's case and Clemens, all he had to do was keep his mouth shut. And I mean, he could have avoided a whole heap of trouble. Maybe he could have even gotten in who knows Schilling's case more politically based, but also character based, you know, that there, there are allegations of racism and it's just, it's, it's pretty sad given what a great pitcher he was throughout his career, you know, went to the world series three with three separate squads uh, in Philadelphia, Arizona, and, and of course, Boston. And it's just, you know, these guys' careers are now all like tainted and it's just, it's, it's sad to see. And personally, there's already, I think it's hypocritical because there's already been guys, including Ortiz, who we knew used steroids at one point in time or another, Pudge Rodriguez being another one. So if you let one or two in, you kind of have to let everybody else in. Or if you don't let anybody in, 
then that's that's it. You know, hey, nobody gets in. If you use steroids, you're out. But, but so, so there's the hypocrisy for me. You know, Bonds, just on what he did in Pittsburgh alone, what Clemens did in Boston alone, that nets you the Hall of Fame, in my opinion. And if you want to put a wing, steroid arrow, whatever the case may be, go ahead. But you still should put these guys in there because of you never vacated the numbers either. So if these guys were users, where, where is all of that? Anyway, it's hypocritical. It's ill-defined. Uh, maybe a special committee eventually puts these guys in, but who knows? Because now that's a committee, not just of baseball writers, or uh, it's former players, it's former managers, it's former execs. Like that could be a tougher sell to your respective colleagues than it is to the writers. So who knows what's going to happen? But I think if those guys never end up in the Hall of Fame, I think that's, I just don't think that's right. I don't. Oh, that was a heck of a show, huh? Thank you for tuning in. Felt good to be back. I'll be back next week. I'm going to have a special guest on uh, to talk uh, the Super Bowl and the LA Rams, Brady, and this whole situation with Brian Flores. Uh, thank you for tuning in every single week. Um, be sure to download and follow on all major streaming platforms, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, as well as Apple iTunes. And you can also follow me on all social media platforms. I'm on Twitter at Chris underscore Camelo. Instagram, C Camelo one Facebook Camelo's corner by Chris Camelo. Thank you, everyone. Take it easy. Talk to you soon. Peace. Tune in every week for an all new edition of Camelo's corner available on SoundCloud and Apple iTunes.